is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Episode 7, Francis Milton Trollope, Part 2. Content warning. Mentions of sexual assault and racial violence occur in this episode. While we aren't explicit in our discussion of them, you may want to shield young listeners' ears. So, in Part 1, we left our intrepid adventurer aboard a ship and on the way to Francis Wright's Neshoba Commune in Tennessee to try to improve her life. Today, we're going to find out more about her voyage and what happened afterward. But before we do, I need to make a few corrections to and additions to last episode's story. So in part one, I speculated that Mary Shelley was less desperate than Fanny in 1827, but after we uploaded the episode, I stopped to think about that statement a little bit, and um, realized in 1827, Mary Shelley was actually five years a widow and living in a state of financial uncertainty as she tried to supplement her son's living allowance with her own writing. Seems like it was a really thorny issue from what I could gather with some quick internet searching. Um, But she was pretty desperate as well at this point in her life, if not necessarily as desperate as Fanny Trollope. Which brings me to a bigger correction This is just kind of a cascade of realizations for me this week. So (laughs) way back in season one, uh, in the season one introductory episode, I made the half-baked claim that Mary Shelley was not a Victorian writer. What I should have said and what I meant to say was that she wasn't a Victorian writer when she wrote Frankenstein, that Frankenstein was not a Victorian book. But Mary Shelley lived until 1851 and continued to publish after Frankenstein, so she was definitely a Victorian writer. And in fact, her Victorian writing career is lesser known. So while it might be fair to say that her work is more romantic than Victorian, we're going to withhold judgment on that until next year because I've decided to add her to season three's lineup when we talk about a bunch of other brilliant gothic writers. Third caveat correction, the Henry Fanny went to see in Paris was not her brother. I should have known that this name recycling was going to uh, come back to haunt me. So um, the Henry she went to see in Paris was actually her son Henry. And this is because a few things happened that we kind of glossed over. So in 1826, Henry basically flunks out of Winchester Um, And so an increasingly frustrated Thomas, Papa, finds him a place in a counting house in Paris. And Fanny and Thomas go with him in September of 1826 to find him a place to live. He's there for about a year, but by September of 1827, he's absolutely miserable. And Fanny decides to go see what can be done about his situation and has the excuse that an old friend is getting married in Paris at the same time. So Julia Garnet. So that's why she ends up in Paris. That's how she runs into um, Francis Wright. A, as you say, it's very confusing. 
with these names um, and B just um, like the names are very confusing B she knows Francis right through her brother Henry so they're mentioned quite close together in most biographies which is even more confusing and also I got really confused by the ages because I'm picturing him when they go to uh, kind of spoiler alert tracking ahead a little bit I'm imagining him when they go to the US as being a young child not someone who can have a job in a different country mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's difficult to keep track I didn't see a lot of mentions of their names um let's see so around this time he is 16 ish I think so a couple more important pieces of the puzzle around this time Fanny befriended an artist named Auguste Turveau I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'm very bad at pronouncing French surnames. (laughs) Um, This artist seems to have been struggling a bit in Europe and ready for a change. So he comes to live with them at their farm for a couple of months and signs on to the U.S. travel plans. The second point is that we forgot to mention in the last episode that Franny had met and befriended General Lafayette one of the French heroes of the American Revolutionary War. And it seems like Fanny and Francis Wright actually met at Lafayette's home during a trip to Paris in 1823. Right, so which is when the family were on the verge of bankruptcy, but still keeping up appearances, if you remember that commentary from the last episode. Yeah, and then Fanny goes on to keep up a correspondence with him through her entire life. His friendship will be instrumental later on. Yes, fateful sounds. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, so with all of that uh, loading up front, let's get back to Fanny's fateful transatlantic voyage. So the trip uh, took approximately seven weeks. After setting out on November 4th, Frances Wright, Fanny, and her youngest children, 16-year-old Henry, yes, 16, 11-year-old Cecilia, and 9-year-old Emily, arrived at the mouth of the Mississippi on Christmas Day of 1827. Henry's there. Oh, we don't need to cover that part now. But that means that when he's being sent to Paris, he must be, what, like 14? That's why it's confusing, because nowadays the idea of sending your 14-year-old kid, you know, a couple of hundred miles away to a different country is insane. Yeah, and I I, I know that there was a practice of, you know, people who didn't make it in school would get apprenticed, and that makes sense to me, but to do, like, to send him all the way to Paris, like, surely there was someone closer in England who could offer him an apprenticeship. But maybe not. I would be amazed if they couldn't find one in London but could in Paris. Yeah, odd odd choices there. Um, so the voyage is not without its own trials. First, Fanny's extended time with Frances Wright made her start to wonder if the woman in whose hands she'd placed her life was really such a safe choice after all. Frances Wright was apparently a bit eccentric in that she'd spend time with the sailors and higher class passengers alike, so mixing of classes is a bit taboo for a lady especially during international travel, apparently. Frances Trollope has a real issue with it, doesn't she? Mm Mm-hmm. As we will see more and more. 
Also, before they reached the safe harbor of Mississippi, the ship was apparently chased by pirates at the mouth of the Gulf of Mexico. So, multiple sources reference this happening and cite domestic manners as the, as the place where this is recorded, but it, it's not actually recorded there, and, and Eleanor can tell us where, where Fanny writes about this incident. It's referenced, it's actually from Frances Eleanor Trollope's biography of her mother-in-law, and it isn't mentioned in Domestic Manners or in either of Tom or Anthony's autobiographies. She writes that many particulars of her life in America have been omitted both in their books and her own, so in Tom's and Anthony's and hers. It could not indeed have been otherwise. An intensive perusal and careful collation of many letters and documents written and printed have been necessary in order to present these particulars with any degree of clearness and without repetition of what has already appeared. So that's just a bit of background about what she's doing with her biography. She's basically going through private correspondence and trying to supplement what has already been published. And she describes the journey as a peculiarly prosperous one as regarded its weather, but that they did meet with one exciting incident which Mrs Trollope has omitted in her book on the United States. Francis Eleanor then quotes from Fanny's private papers in full, so we'll follow suit. We were sitting on deck, watching, as usual, the setting sun, when, as darkness approached, one among us descried in the west a light that appeared like that of a beacon. We called to the captain to tell us what it was. He looked very grave and said, It is a signal to us to lie to. Shall you do so? we asked. He appeared not to hear us, but we immediately heard him giving orders, which were followed by hoisting as much additional canvas as we could safely carry. He evidently kept out of our way to avoid questions, and we saw there was something wrong, though we knew not what. The next morning, when I got on deck, I saw every glass on board pointed to a speck on the horizon. Is she gaining on us? was pronounced in accents of so much anxiety by the standards by, that I became convinced something terrible was approaching. When the good captain found that he could no longer conceal the fact, he confessed that there was every reason to believe we were chased by a pirate. For some hours our situation was painful enough. The common sailors, having less discretion than the captain, scrupled not to assure us that they should all be barbarously murdered, and that we should be robbed and chained down to our berths, at least, if not thrown one upon the other into the sea. The stranger vessel evidently gained upon us, and terror was as evidently doing the same, when another vessel, and a right gallant one, was discovered chasing our chaser. The latter tacked and shifted, and at length veered about, scudding away as fast as possible before the wind, with the English man-of-war, as she was soon discovered to be, after her. I doubt if the females on board felt more relieved at their escape than did the crew. It is true they knew better what the danger was than we did, and various and most ghastly were the stories with which they entertained us for many days afterwards, of the water rats that frequent the entrance to the Mexican Gulf. So, interestingly, it seems that they arrived at New Orleans just as the city was gearing up to celebrate the anniversary of General Jackson's victory against the British at the Battle of New Orleans in 1814-1815. I almost included this in the Around the World feature at the beginning of last episode, but uh, decided against it and then it came up again. So um, I've linked in the show notes to a famous song commemorating this battle if you're interested and have decided because I 
like singing on this podcast, I guess. I don't know. I like embarrassing myself um, to, to give you a sample of, of what the lyrics are like. So it goes like this. In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans. We fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. That was really bad. <laughs> anyway, but it's um, intentionally kind of hillbillying it up because of the kind of classism of British versus US in their various wars. I was just going to say this kind of shows through in some of the later Francis Trollope's criticisms of the US do sometimes border on snobbery. Yes, yeah. So I think that it sets a tone that will be relevant throughout. Yeah, so all that to say, Fanny's first impressions of the US, already bleak, would likely have been soured even further by anti-British sentiment surrounding this celebration. Um, I'm going to read an extended version of her first impressions of the Mississippi and of Louisiana as recorded in domestic manners because I've, I've found that most people actually just quote a much shorter version of this passage and it kind of skews her sentiments. So this shows her critique, but also shows her giving some credit to this new landscape. Yeah, I mean, even though nowadays no one would dream of saying that, it's not a loaded term at the time. Before I read this passage, I just want to warn you that it uses terminology to refer to black people that we find offensive today, and I've only preserved it here because it shows you Frances Milton Trollope's worldview and that of her society. I never beheld a scene so utterly desolate as this entrance of the Mississippi. Had Dante seen it, he might have drawn images of another bulgia from its horrors. One only object rears itself above the eddying waters. This is the mast of a vessel long since wrecked in attempting to cross the bar, and it still stands, a dismal witness of the destruction that has been, and a boding prophet of that which is to come. By degrees, bulrushes of enormous growth become visible and a few more miles of mud brought us within sight of a cluster of huts called the Belize, by far the most miserable station that I ever saw made the dwelling of man. But I was told that many families of pilots and fishermen lived there. For several miles above its mouth, the Mississippi presents no objects more interesting than mud banks, monstrous bulrushes, and now and then a huge crocodile luxuriating in the slime. Another circumstance that gives to this dreary scene an aspect of desolation is the incessant appearance of vast quantities of driftwood which is ever finding its way to the different mouths of the Mississippi. Trees of enormous length sometimes still bear their branches and still oftener their uptorn roots entire. The victims of the frequent hurricane come floating down the stream. Sometimes several of these, entangled together, collect among their boughs a quantity of floating rubbish that gives the mass the appearance of a moving island bearing a forest with its roots mocking the heavens, while the dishonored branches lash the tide in idle vengeance. This, as it approaches the vessel and glides swiftly past, looks like the fragment of a world in ruins. 
As we advanced, however, we were cheered, notwithstanding the season, by the bright tints of southern vegetation. The banks continue invariably flat, but a succession of plainless villas, sometimes merely a residence, and sometimes surrounded by their sugar grounds and negro huts, varied the scene. At one point was there an inch of what painters call a second distance, and for the length of 120 miles from the Belize to New Orleans, and 100 miles above the town, the land is defended from the encroachments of the river by a high embankment which is called the levee, without which the dwellings would speedily disappear, as the river is evidently higher than the banks would be without it. When we arrived, there had been constant rains and of long continuance, and this appearance was therefore unusually striking, giving to this great natural feature the most unnatural appearance imaginable, and making evident not only that man had been busy there, but that even the mightiest works of nature might be made to bear his impress. It recalled, literally, Swift's mock heroic, nature must give way to art. Yet she was looking so mighty and so unsubdued all the time that I could not help fancying she would some day take the matter into her own hands again, and if so, farewell to New Orleans. So, either the tenuous geographical situation of New Orleans was super apparent even in 1827, which, yeah, probably, or maybe Fanny was a bit prescient, maybe a bit of both, Either way, I was struck in this passage not only by her sort of look to the future at the end, but the grudging way her language starts to convey the, the, the kind of wild beauty of the place. It's a far cry from the manicured beauty she would have been used to coming from England, but the natural splendor and the way it works on her, like of affects the viewer, really kind of starts to sparkle through, I think. So on the 1st of January, 1828, they traded ship for boat, embarking up the Mississippi on the Belvedere on their way to Memphis, Tennessee. Aboard this boat, it seems that culture shock sets in in earnest. Fanny becomes increasingly horrified about the mixing of the classes, the type and quality of food and commodities, and the lack of table etiquette. To her, it seems that Americans have no polish. They eat too fast, use too much slang and uncouth phrases, pronounce everything incorrectly, and have a bad habit of spitting tobacco all over the place. Uh, which, <laughs> depending on where you're traveling, a lot of those things are still true. Uh, she took particular offense to the frightful manner of feeding with their knives till the whole blade seemed to enter their mouth, and the still more frightful manner of clearing the teeth afterwards with a pocket knife. So, lots of misusing of utensils, which, as a grad student, I have to admit, happens quite often. You know, you want to eat your morning cereal, but you're out of spoons and you don't have time to wash dishes, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> some creative utensil use will occur. <laughs> but I've also seen a lot of people perform the latter operation, cleaning their teeth with pocket knives which is terrifying. Yeah, I've never seen that myself. And I have to say, with my experimental utensils, I've never plumped for a knife. I don't know whether my parents were framing it as bad manners or just you don't want to cut your tongue. 
Right. It is really hazardous. And, uh, like, I think the worst I've ever done is use a butter knife as, like, a fork substitute, but not uncommon, depending on who you know. <laughs> uh, so, in, in some ways, the U.S. is still quite strikingly similar to the place that Fanny encountered. <laughs> Um, so let's take a pause here in their onward journey and get to know Fanny's traveling companion a little bit more. Yeah, so that's obviously that's Fanny Wright, and we already know a little bit about her radical politics, but I wanted to reproduce Frances Ellen and Trollope's description of a lithographed picture that she's found. And it kind of gives us a good idea of her character as well. So she is a tall, handsome woman with regular features, richly curling hair, short all over the head, and an earnest expression of countenance. And she is dressed absolutely and positively in the bloomer costume. There it is. Short tunic, wide sash round the waist, full trousers gathered in at the ankle, even the broad-brimmed straw hat which she holds in her hand. She also notes with a little bit of a judgmental tone that Wright was friends with Robert Owen. It's worth mentioning that Francella Trollope is quite a conservative person, but Robert Owen needs a bit of a gloss, I think. Y yes, yeah. So if you have never heard of Robert Owen, um, we're going to turn once again to the Encyclopedia Britannica for its quick bios. Uh, to fill you in. Robert Owen was a Welsh manufacturer turned reformer, one of the most influential early 19th century advocates of utopian socialism. His new Lanark mills in Lanarkshire, Scotland, I've just slaughtered that, uh, with their social and industrial welfare programs, became a place of pilgrimage for statesmen and social reformers. He also sponsored or encouraged many experimental utopian communities, and one of them will come into play a little bit later. But he is not to be confused with uh, Richard Owen, the famous discoverer of many dinosaur skeletons, fossils, with whom I had briefly confused him in the writing of this episode. <laughs> so Owen will later go on to be central to the Chartist movement of 1848, which I think I mentioned last episode is one of my favourite years. Just stay with Frances Eleanor a little bit longer for her description of the Nashover Commune, which she says is carried on in accordance with Mr Owen's social views that industry, peace and plenty were to bless the settlement, and those disasters of the old world which were, in his opinion, due to long-rooted error, were to be rectified in the new. Um, and it's tempting to say, uh, tell you a little bit about what Fanny Wright does after Neshoba, because it's hilarious, but we're going to save that for another episode. She leads a very fascinating life, just leave it at that, and get along with our story. So when they finally get to Tennessee... Fanny is aghast at the conditions she finds at Neshoba. Sharing a grubby room with no roof with Frances Wright, she began plotting her next moves right away, or that's the feeling I get. 
but she sticks around for at least a couple months. Um, and in her biography of, of her mother-in-law, Frances Eleanor Trollope insists that uh, Fanny never planned to stay for more than a few months and denies that she was ever going to be involved in the educational scheme. But there seems to have been a lot of family-saving face going on and a little bit of misinformation. For example, um, Frances Eleanor Trollope is under the impression that they set out for the U.S. right away to uh, open a business, and um, we'll unpack that a little bit more later, but um, this is why you have to look at multiple biographies and see what's been discovered more recently and um, maybe not always trust a family member who is very invested in the family reputation. <laughs> yeah, they have a narrative to spread. Yes. More than just the truth. Yes. So, Fanny writes at this time that, quote, The Francis Wright of Neshoba, in dress, look, and manner, bore no resemblance to the Miss Wright I had known and admired in London and Paris, then did her log cabin to the Tuileries or Buckingham Palace. But to do her justice, I believe her imagination was so exclusively occupied on the scheme she had in view that all her other faculties were, in a manner, suspended. End quote. Yeah, I wonder whether the Bloomer outfit was exclusive to Nashoba or whether she, she'd had some kind of similar get-up in Paris. Yeah, it's an interesting question because she seems to have had this really strategic way of presenting herself in Europe and then kind of just like drops the act as soon as they're on the boat and they can't get back. <laughs> I was kind of surprised there's even the lithographed portrait of her in her blue bra outfit, but I imagine that she's wearing her dress in Europe and then she's got back on the boat and been like, oh, it's fine, I can put my trousers back on now. Mm-hmm. Which I cannot blame her one bit. <laughs> uh, so apparently, in addition to the um, incomplete living structures, there is a problem with the food supplies. And they are living on the basics. So pork, cornbread, a few potatoes, whatever vegetables they can scrounge, but they don't have a steady supply of food items that Fanny thinks are basic necessities to civilized life. Yeah, and in one of the letters she says that they don't have any water that isn't rainwater, which is yeah really sums it up. For the discussions we've had a few in the Brandon episode, you know, we might be relieved that they still at least have potatoes, but apparently the Trollops have brought them with them. So at least they've had the foresight to bring potatoes. And also, Fanny was yes. apparently really wasn't impressed with the cornbread. And I wonder if it was just that she didn't like cornbread or if there was, like, a problem with the supply of cornmeal, like if bugs had gotten into it or if it had been water damaged. But it's hard to know. Yeah, I think she just says something like, we didn't even have any proper wheat bread, we just had this horrible cornbread. So it's not sure, it's not clear whether she thought the specific cornbread was horrible or the entire concept. I have to cop to never Which have it. I... Sorry. If we ever meet, then I'll make you some cornbread because it's the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. 
If it's made right, it's delicious. So I'm a little bit hurt by Fanny's prejudice, but... Well, maybe she's... Sounds like she's having bad cornbread. Yeah, she's having some bad cornbread. And um, that might be explained by what's to come. So Frances writes, quote, scheme, which is what um, both she and Fanny call it. So not in the modern, like, bad, schemey kind of way, but just overall plan, right? Was to prove that black children were as intelligent as white children by teaching them in the same school. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here. And <laughs> because I am, have deep issues with this whole situation for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, so on the surface, this all sounds very progressive. And in some ways, it was progressive, especially considering the quote-unquote scientific developments of the 19th century, which often skewed tests and data in the effort to scientifically prove white supremacy. But as you may have noted in my comments last episode, I have some reservations about the real progressiveness of this. So for one thing, the commune was to be run by slaves that Francis Wright purchased at whatever the white men who considered them their property thought was a fair price. So there was to be like no financial loss to those guys in this proceeding. Um, Wright believed that her the, the slaves... That she was trying to help would work hard on the colony if promised their emancipation, but it's unclear what the actual process of emancipation was to be, or whether the white people involved participated in any of the day-to-day labor of the place. Um, so that's a huge kind of, not even a red flag, it's just kind of a huge beacon of trouble. I was just going to say, I think this is a kind of a general problem around white people's approach to the abolition of slavery in that time, because I like the the British government is literally still paying off the debts that they took out to pay back slave owners when they abolished slavery. There's no financial loss for these people; they just get the money instead of the people that they took as property. Yeah, there's like no. Um no retribution for their participation in this horrible system um they lose they don't lose reputation they don't lose financially they probably thought they did but that's another story yeah if i remember correctly that line was phrased as reparations and it's like the white slave owners are not the people who are owed reparations Yeah, and it's unclear. So, I mean, Frances Wright gets this great idea for her next big uh, project, basically. The next big thing that she's working on and doesn't seem... I don't know, like, that she asked people or that she, like, had people volunteer or if she just was, like, going to the auction and buying a bunch of people and then, like, just treating them like scientific subjects in the name of doing good. So, yeah. Um, So, even today, often, I find that white activists are really presumptive and condescending toward the people that they're- they've deemed in need of their 
help. Like, even just the, the thing of, like, I need to step in and be the hero is, is pretty presumptuous. But to give credit where it's due, at this point in U.S. history, educating black children or black people at all is a super radical concept. So I do have to give her props for that. And I don't think she meant to be horrible or to set up a system that's hugely questionable. But she still did. So there's a very real sense in which Francis Wright was using these children as political pawns. Um, or maybe not political as much as, um, ugh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Like, um, to... I mean, they definitely advance her reputation as an activist. Her records about the place betray racial prejudice, so she's always commenting about the problems she's having with the black children and not with the white children. Um, I was going to say, was the word you were looking for that she's um, her help is very performative? Yes, yeah. So she makes a big deal about how good of a person she is, I guess. But I think you have the same problem as me with people nowadays, especially when they won't, or a certain kind of person won't do something to help someone. They'll do something and turn up to a volunteering event so that they can tweet about it or take a selfie. You know, they won't do it for the sake of helping. It's a reputational thing. Yeah, like, yeah, you sign on to a cause because it's famous, right? Or, like, it's trending, you know? Yeah. So, when Francis Wright, we, I'm kind of jumping ahead a, a little bit here, but when Francis Wright gives up on Neshoba slightly after Fanny Trollope does, she does make an effort to relocate the children to a safe place. So she sends them to Haiti, where slavery had ended in 1804. But there's no record of there being any consideration of where where they wanted to go, or um, if they were torn away from families and friends, or like if they even knew why they were being abandoned by this eccentric white woman who'd breezed into their lives and claimed to care about them. So, uh, yeah, this whole thing kind of just deeply unsettled me, I guess. Um, so I just wanted to call attention to, yes, she was doing progressive things, but sometimes, even with the best of intentions, if you don't like actually stop and think, you end up doing much more harm than good. Yeah, I had a whole run to add, but I think we've said everything that needs to be said and we can move on. So, let's talk about this French guy that joined in for the trip out of the blue. Friend August. Yeah, so August Evia is how I would say it, but who knows. August Evia had come along to teach art classes, not French classes as I almost just said, but finding that there was no school went to work in a nearby town until Fanny decided they should all head on to Cincinnati. But why Cincinnati? 
Yeah, that seems like a bizarre and random choice, especially in the 1820s. Yeah, so this is what you were alluding to earlier with Francis Eleanor Trollope's slightly strange framing of the trip. So she basically says that they're there, the whole reason they go to the US is to open up a bazaar in Cincinnati. Which is, it's still strange, but yeah, it's not clear when that decision was made. I'm quite dubious of Francis Eleanor's claim that it was the original plan all along, because it's just so weird. And it's really haphazard and, uh, like, last ditch. So it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to buy into Francis Eleanor's claims about that. Yeah, I feel like if if that had been planned along, it would have been better planned. One would hope. <laughs> so at any rate, she withdraws whatever money she's invested in the commune and makes plans to head to Cincinnati. But before she goes, somehow not having learned her lesson about American communes, Fanny sends Henry off to work at Robert Owen's utopian commune in Indiana called New Harmony. But Owen was already actively divesting from the commune, and by 1828 he would be completely out of the picture. Um, one of his colleagues, a Mr. McClure, had opened a school there, and that's where Henry actually works for a number of months. Um, Mr. McClure in turn abandons ship, leaving his school in the control of an exploitative French woman who is never named in any of the biographies I've encountered, who is determined to use the school to enrich herself at the expense of her employees and pupils. So, for example, she completely ditched the coursework and just puts her students to work in the fields, like harvesting and planting crops. She's kind of like Francis Wright with none of the good intentions. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll take a school and... <laughs> just get some labor out of it. And it's unclear who this commune was intended to serve originally. I <clears throat> didn't follow up that trail, did you? The impression I got was that it was kind of supposed to be an example for Owens to prove how his ideas could work in practice. Hmm. Yeah, I can't... Communes and utopias in the United States never end well. <laughs> Just <laughs> from a long personal interest in the subject, I can assure you all <laughs> that never, never a good plan. <laughs> Just thinking about Cliff and Bundy. Loves his commune. Yeah, they never end well, but I think it is a kind of practical test of Owen's socialist views. Okay. So he gives up on those quite early and heads back to off to do whatever else he had on his agenda. Um, meanwhile, Henry's writing frantic letters to his mother explaining how horrible conditions are, but she doesn't receive these letters for quite some time. Um, in fact, for two full months. And in the meantime, she sets about adjusting to life in Cincinnati. Yeah, and it seems like even if she had received Henry's letters, she wouldn't have been able to help. 
it's not really clear whether she's just not receiving letters or she's not receiving letters from her husband. Mm-hmm. Basically, and we'll cover this a bit more in detail a bit more later, she's got no money. Yeah, then this becomes a worse and worse problem for her. But um, So Fanny, her daughters, and her beau uh, arrived in Cincinnati on the 10th of February, 1828. They were disappointed by the city's rather flat skyline at the time, but impressed by the dock. Their first lodgings were rather short-lived when the landlady took issue at their request to dine privately. Um, Boarding houses in the U.S. typically served common meals at big tables that looked like just actually really long picnic tables. If you've ever been to um, a more authentic barbecue joint, you'll probably find seating like this still. Um, if you've ever seen the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, there's an example of this sort of boarding house dining scene, and it was just considered good manners to join your hosts in a meal every night and kind of come together as a, as a tiny artificial community. But Fanny wants her privacy, and sort of butts heads with the landlady. So they stay one whole night at this lodging house. Yeah, and the other point is that at this time in Britain, if you're eating with your hosts, you're kind of at a lodging house, which is seen as very very low class and not what well-to-do people like Fanny would do. Yeah, so again, a class issue... Where and, and I think that's one of the things that Fanny finds most off-putting about the U.S. is that while there are classes, it's much more common to intermix and it's more about um, a broad sense of community than about um, sticking to your status and your peers. Yeah, and there's a lot of these rules that are classed in Britain that for no reason and the logic that makes them low-class just doesn't apply to a different country. Right, yeah. I mean, like, there are wealthy people in the U.S. who are quite snobbish, um, but even in, in day-to-day commerce, they would have interacted with people of all classes as they go about their business. So, once they settle into another lodging house, Fanny writes to Thomas regarding their speeded-up timeline So the fact that she left Neshoba earlier than planned and her increasingly pressing financial predicament. But Thomas doesn't seem to receive the letters until May. Yeah, so on the 4th of May, 1828, when she still hasn't heard from Thomas, she writes to distinguishing between Thomas the father and Tom the son. So she writes to Tom and says she's included a letter for his father. And it's the night that she's written to him without hearing anything back. She writes, quote, I cannot express to you the dreadful anxiety to which his silence gives birth. Is your father ill? Is he dead? Have his affairs fallen into such confusion that he has not been able to procure the money possible to send us a remittance? Wherever you may be, my dearest Tom, when you receive this, I entreat you to write to me immediately. Our situation here would be dreadful were it not for Monsieur Evia's grateful and generous kindness. It is more than a month that we have not had a mouthful of food that he has not paid for. So at the end of June, she finally hears from Thomas, and he claims to be coming 
basically like on the next ship or as soon as possible. But he doesn't show up until November. So in the meantime, Ervo continues to support the family with his painting. He gets work at a local school where he makes very good money or respectable amounts of money until he until the school brings in a German painter as a fellow teacher, and apparently he and the German painter just don't see eye to eye or can't work civilly together. So he leaves, opens his own school near the Western Museum, and this location is extremely propitious for the whole group. Evia became acquainted with the museum's new director, Joseph Dorfwil, and introduced him to Fanny. Together, the three plus their associates would become a powerful team. Evia specialised in panoramic paintings. Fanny had the power of the pen. Her son Henry could speak Latin, Greek and French. And Evia's associate, Hiram Powers, was a, quote, mechanical genius and amateur sculptor. So together, this dream team began to plan exhibits, moving tableau with questionable historical accuracy, such as, quote, the invisible girl, fitted up as one of those theaters of probation in the Egyptian mysteries. Hiram made um, pieces of the exhibits move, I'm assuming human figures probably. Henry did spooky oracle-style voiceovers in multiple languages, and the whole thing was such a success that Fanny decided to up the ante. So what if, she asked the team, we create Dante's Infernal Regions? She created a program, provided translations, and made suggestions about the tableau. The men made her vision reality, and the attraction opened in July 1828, drawing huge crowds. If you're not familiar with Dante, um, the Infernal Regions is just basically her her recreating uh, various scenes from the hellscape that Dante imagines. Um, so very um, sensational subject matter. Yeah, Dante doesn't hold back any of the descriptions of punishments in hell. And it seems like they didn't really hold back either. Hmm. So there were wax figures and gruesome scenes, and it was all very melodramatic. Fanny didn't really mention her participation later in Vive. But, you know, maybe she's embarrassed. We don't know. Yeah, but despite her later embarrassment or reticence, the attraction continued to draw huge crowds for 33 years. It ran until 1861. It's unclear how much this all contributed to her financial well-being. It seems like not much. Um, From what I read, the Western Museum was deeply in debt. And, um, I mean, the nonprofit wasn't really a concept back then. So it was a for-profit business that had quite large debts. Um, So a lot of the funds were probably just used to cover costs and even break even, but it seems that the group was still in significant financial distress despite this successful collaboration. Yeah, then unfortunately in the same summer, the whole family come down with an influenza. They thought it was the cholera at one point and were pretty panicked. And Evia was touch and go for a little while, but luckily all came through alive. Yeah, the influenza was really serious. and I mean, it's still can be very serious, but especially back then, 
it was a fatal illness quite frequently, so nothing to scoff at. Yeah, it's nearly a hundred years later when it's a, one of the biggest epidemics in the world, isn't it? So mm -hmm. at this time, it's really scary. Fanny didn't much like Cincinnati, though she didn't actively hate it like she had Neshoba. And Cincinnati didn't much like Fanny. An article in the Cincinnati Mirror rather cuttingly described her as, quote, a learned lady, short, thick, and vulgar-looking, some 40 or 50 years old. She might be seen ever and anon in a green calash and a long plaid cloak dragging at her heels and walking with those Colosseum strides unattainable by any but Englishwoman. As a long-strided Englishwoman, I find that very amusing. That's... Uh, that's funny. I uh, tend to have a long stride myself, and everyone's always complaining about it, so I'm not sure about that last bit, but... Yeah, I'm sure people of other nationalities can manage it. <laughs> I can't imagine Americans just walk... American women just walking around taking mincing steps. Like, that just seems terribly out of character, but... Yeah, it seems like you would expect the stereotype to go in the other direction. Yeah. Um, and it seems like about this time, Fanny starts becoming known as, quote, Madame Vinegar, because she has a very dry, acerbic wit and can be quite judgmental. Yeah, she doesn't really scruple to tell people when they don't meet her standards. Yes. In the background of all of this, she's still corresponding with probably all of her acquaintance, um, especially with Lafayette who, around this time, provides her with what will become a get-out-of-jail-free card of sorts, a letter of introduction to a family in New York who would host them if they ever happened to be in the area. If you just pop over to New York from Cincinnati at a time with limited transport. <laughs> yeah, that's a ways. I'm just still baffled by, like, why Cincinnati? That's a strange choice. But Fanny wasn't quite done with Cincinnati yet, as much as she disliked the place, so she decided to open a bazaar. The city, she reasoned, needed a cultural center where men and women could enjoy themselves in mixed company. The U.S. at the time was still much more Puritan than England, and the gendered spheres are just that, gendered. As Fanny writes, I never saw any people who appeared to live so much without amusement. Billiards are forbidden by law, so are cards. They have no public balls, excepting, I think, six during the Christmas holidays. They have no concerts. They have no dinner parties. They have a theater, which is in fact the only public amusement. Ladies are rarely seen there. It is in the churches and chapels of the town that the ladies are to be seen in full costume. So she decides, knowing this, to build a center to encourage the arts. Irvo assisted, and she planned to stay for two years while the business was established, and then leave it to her son Henry's care, finally finding him something to do with his life, seemingly, and return to England. The money was to come from her inheritance from her father, which had just passed through probate in 1827. Yeah, I feel like we forget how long these... When did he die? It was like the... I think it was 1826. 
or 25. Oh, was it? Why did I thought he died in like 1801 for some reason. I think that's her mother. No, he died in the same... Like, he died months after um, their other son. Arthur? Whose name I'm blanking on. Yes, he died months after Arthur did, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I'm thinking that he died much earlier. It's all coming back to me now. Yeah. So, our good friend Thomas finally arrives, and he's surprised Fanny by bringing Tom, who's now 18, with him. He's just graduated from Winchester and is waiting to see if he get a place at Oxford. Spoiler alert, he does. <laughs> and Anthony had been left at Winchester over the summer holidays. Poor kid. He seems like he has middle kid syndrome. <laughs> yeah. I can't feel too sorry for him. No, he's by far the most successful of the children. Also a spoiler, but you probably all know that, listeners. <laughs> Yeah, he made up for it later. Also, I don't know whether I feel more sorry for him being left at Winchester or for Tom being dragged off by his dad. Yeah. Having to spend expended time with his dad. True. True. I was focused on the uh, prospect of international travel, which would have delighted me, but then, yeah, if it's a, if it's your cranky father as a companion, then that might just sap the joy out of the adventure. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to spend any time with Thomas Senior, let alone an extended few months. Yeah, seven weeks in the close quarters of a ship's hold. Hmm. Oh, thank you. So, while Thomas is there, he and Fanny choose a site on which to build their bazaar. They have plans drawn up. They buy a piece of land on 3rd Street near Broadway for 1665 so $1,665 which I've forgotten to look up what that translates to in today's money, but I will put it in the show notes. Um, then, like, basically right after they buy the land and write up the building plans, Thomas and Tom return to England, stopping to visit Niagara Falls on the way, so it seems like that's already a very popular tourist destination. Yeah, bear with me. What is the year? 1828, is it? It's either eight, yeah, I think it's eighteen twenty-eight. Mm-hmm. I am using Measuring Worth. Have you heard of that site? Yes. So according to that, sixteen sixty-five in eighteen twenty-eight would be worth, in terms of purchasing power, in twenty eighteen is worth. It says in 2016 the relative real price of that commodity is $43,500. Hmm. So it's hmm not as much as I expected. Well, right now it's um uh well, I'll get to that in a second. So the great thing if you're a student about this website that we're talking about is that it gives you different ideas so that it says, for example, the real price is 43500 but the um, economic status it gives is $1.3 million. So hmm. gives you hmm. gives you an idea. That's interesting. So I also just quickly did a Google search about Niagara Falls, and apparently it didn't become a park until April 30th, 1885. But it's still clearly already 
a huge tourist attraction just for the waterfalls. Um, I guess in the 1820s, the uh, a fledgling tourism industry begins to develop around the falls. Yeah, I have one of my favourite historical anecdotes is around the falls. It's around this, I think it was a British person, but this um, very early daredevil who survived going over the falls and then eventually died when he slipped on some orange peel. I feel like I've heard that before, yeah. Let's see if we can link to that in the show notes. I've probably told you it before at some point. I've told most people I've ever met. That's, uh, yep. Sounds like the, the kind of trick the universe likes to play on a daredevil. Such a good fact. Yeah. So, like we say, that 1665 was the prestige value is about 1.3 million, so it's equivalent to basically they're viewed as millionaires. So, it's pretty fancy, and so is the building. So, it's a mix of Gothic and Egyptian architectural elements, three stories tall, and has exquisite interiors. The contractors kind of took advantage of their not knowing the area and not entirely au fait with local procedures, I guess, and the building had to be completed on credit. Yes, in part because they uh, were basically selling the trollops materials that were unnecessary or overcharging for some, or just choosing the most expensive kinds just to up the bill. Apparently they weren't well-liked by their construction crew. Um, also, Thomas goes rogue. After setting these plans and then heading back to the UK, he decides that instead of giving... Is it the UK at this point? I feel like I just used that term incorrectly and now I'm... The UK goes back to the 17th century. Okay, good. It's not in common <laughs> usage, but you can refer to it. Uh, I just felt paranoid. It might be 18th century, it's certainly pre-Victorian. It's the Act of Union is a date that I should know. <laughs> um, okay, so go ahead. <laughs> I can reel off 1776 off the top of my head, but I have no idea when the Act of Union was passed. Oh, that's funny. 1707. Interesting. Hmm. So Thomas goes rogue and uh, decides that instead of giving her the $6,000 to build the bazaar and get set up that they'd agreed on before he left back to England, he'd sent her $2,000 and $4,000 worth of ridiculous goods, which Fanny didn't think they'd be able to resell. Because it's Thomas, so of course he did. If you, if you was a character in one of her books, you would say... This is not believable. No one is this terrible. No one is this laughable. Yeah, I agree. He's so horrible that it seems like a loss of verisimilitude as you read about him. Like, nobody could be this, like, just oblivious and villainous. But he can, and he does. So Henry desperately sells these goods at auction for whatever he can get for them so that they can try to pay off the workmen. And then everything else is seized by creditors. I think by everything else, um, that means the 
furniture and like light fixtures and stuff because it seems like they still have the building for a little while um and fanny tries to put on some various kinds of entertainment but it was only a matter of time and the bazaar fails and they are in even worse financial shambles than they were before and the building becomes known as trollop's folly I would say here, listeners, don't take much business advice from me, but some business advice you can take from me is if you're investing in constructing a business, don't do it in an area where nobody likes you and is waiting to see you do badly. Yeah, that seems... That just seems like a wise rule of thumb for life in general. Yeah. Yeah. So, in 1834... The building is sold for $4,667, and in 1840, it became a physico-medical institute. It was later turned into a hospital for soldiers during the Civil War, and even later, it became a shelter for ladies of the evening. And then finally, in 1881, it was torn down to clear the lot for an apartment building, which stood for some time. But today, Interstate 71 runs over the spot. Um, apparently, you can ca- catch a glimpse of it in an old daguerreotype that I've linked to in the show notes. I wasn't able to find it. I saw a building that kind of looked like this drawing that I've also linked to. But maybe you'll have better luck than I did. We'll keep looking. So they scraped together money and waited out the winter and travelled to the East Coast on their way back to New York. Well, not back to New York, but on their way to New York, where they stayed with those friends of Lafayette's that we mentioned earlier and tried to raise enough to head back to England. So that's March of 1830. This is a good time to take a break. We'll be back soon with the rest of Francis Milton Trollope's life story. Well, thanks for listening. Yes, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's Scribblers is written by myself, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com support us.
Music for this podcast courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. New Orleans. Well, we fired our guns and the British kept coming. There wasn't half as many as there was a while ago. We fired our guns and they began to run in down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico.